Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, Slow Burn listeners. We're busy working on season two of the show, but for now, we have a special episode for you. And it's a live one. Literally. It took place on Thursday, April 19th at Baruch College in New York City. It was a lovely night with appearances by Bob Woodward, Gail Sheehy, Virginia Heffernan, and best of all, for fans of Slow Burn, Episode 4, Mary DiOrio and Mark Lackritz of the Senate Watergate Committee staff. Enjoy. So I want to spend tonight's show thinking out loud about how news becomes history. This is something that Richard Nixon thought a lot about. Throughout his post-Watergate life, Nixon tried really hard to exert his influence over how history would remember him. In 1977, he famously gave an interview to the British journalist David Frost. This was when he said the line about how if the president does it, it means it's not illegal. It's also the interview where he blamed Watergate on Martha Mitchell. That interview, the Frost interview, was probably Nixon's most concentrated act of personal rehabilitation up to that point. But the comeback tour had really started as soon as he left office. That same month, the same month he left office in late August of 74, Nixon began his attempts to take control of his image. Richard Nixon's offering to write a book for a $2 million advance, if any publisher will pay it. This was before he was even pardoned, and the book ended up selling for $2.5 million, most of which went towards his legal bills. The book was elegantly and almost flirtatiously titled RN, The Memoirs of Richard Nixon. Uh, it was published in 1978, and in it, Nixon sought to set the record straight about Watergate. He insisted that he was right to assert executive privilege with regard to the White House tapes. He insisted that he was right to fire Archibald Cox. And at one point in the book, he writes quite specifically about certain of the White House tapes. He addresses a few of the more damning passages. Uh, there's one standout act of reinterpretation that I wanted to highlight pertains to a Nixon quote that is usually transcribed as, I don't give a shit what happens. I want you all to stonewall it. Let them plead the Fifth Amendment, cover up, or anything else. If it'll save it, save the plan. In his book, Nixon characterizes this comment as nothing more than an oblique way of confronting the need to make a painful shift in the White House's Watergate strategy. <laughs> he had a wild imagination. Nixon was tireless as a Watergate revisionist for the final 20 years of his life. So basically through the 80s and into the 90s before his death in 94. And this effort was wrapped up in a broader campaign to get back some of his status that he lost when he stopped being president. The American people ready to pardon Richard Nixon for Watergate? Since 1952, a series of new Nixons has rolled off the assembly line. And we are now looking at the 1984 model. It was a small thing to break in, and break in for the Kurt in other campaigns as well. In 1985, there was a New York Times article headlined, Nixon's Rehabilitation of Nixon. It was all about Nixon's successful, pretty successful attempts to regain political and intellectual influence in the years after Watergate. 
So just for example, the story describes how Nixon held two dinners for Washington journalists in his New Jersey home, in which he offered opinions on topics ranging from the 84 presidential campaign to the likely presidential contest in 88. Also, and this part is truly amazing, uh, he engaged in meetings with key Reagan political operatives and crafted a memorandum offering advice on how Mr. Reagan could prevent his Democratic challenger, Walter Mondale, electoral college votes to win. It's honestly like a dark joke that Richard Nixon is giving someone advice on how to win re-election against a Democrat. Anyway, two years after the Times piece, Newsweek put Nixon on the cover under the headline, he's back. <laughs> so what strikes me is that for all the time and energy that Nixon put into rehabilitating himself, I don't think it really worked. Uh, like his memoir was a bestseller. Uh, he got to go and meet the press a bunch of times and talk about foreign policy. Uh, and all the other presidents said very nice things about him at his funeral. May the day of judging President Nixon on anything less than his entire life and career come to a close. It might just be that I'm in a bubble, but from where I sit, this, there doesn't seem to be a very large or at least vocal contingent of people out there in 2018 who love Richard Nixon. Polling suggests that any gains that Nixon might have made in public opinion prior to his death have been erased since. So in 1987, which was roughly the height of his term offensive, Nixon's disapproval ratings were at 47%. By 2006, that number had shot up to the mid-60s and had stayed there ever since. You don't need polling to know that Watergate is still synonymous with corruption and power-hungry derangement. Uh, there's a remarkable amount of consensus that Nixon was a villain, that no matter what other achievements he had in office, the opening of China, the creation of the EPA, all the stuff that's bound up in Watergate amounts to a tragedy that was embarrassing and painful and scary. And that's how we feel now. But the way we feel now is the result of four decades of informal struggle over what Watergate was. This was a process that has shaped and reshaped conventional wisdom about what happened and what it meant. And Richard Nixon was just one of many, many, many people who have tried to intervene in that process. You know, there were all the other players in the drama who wrote memoirs. There were countless major works of history that are still being written about Watergate. There were a few movies. And now there's a podcast which is why we're here. And I wanted to say that when we started working on Slow Burn, we had to figure out what the conventional wisdom on Watergate was. One aspect of that was deciding how much do people know? What level of expertise should we assume on the part of our listeners? And what conception of Watergate would they be bringing to the show? Because in order to justify doing this at all, you know, we had to believe that there was something to push against or to add texture to, some kind of standard story the version of Watergate that exists in the public imagination. So Martha Mitchell, was she in the public imagination? How many people here knew who Martha Mitchell was before they heard it on a slow burn? Well, so I don't know if my, my boss, Jacob Weisberg, is here, but uh, when he had me on his show after slow burn launched uh, on his show Trumpcast, he gave me a really hard time for not knowing who Martha Mitchell was. And I didn't have the stomach to tell him at the time that I didn't even really know who John Mitchell was. Um, so like I said at the top, uh, my goal with tonight's show is to sort of think out loud about this question of how history settles, how memories and assessments get passed down, how they calcify, 
and how they arrange themselves in our collective memory. What determines what everyone knows? Which revisions to the standard story last and which ones don't? And why is it so exciting to learn something new about something you thought you understood? This is Slow Burn Live. I'm your host, Leon Nafok. We have a great show for you today. My first guests tonight are a couple. Uh, they've been married 45 years, and you might remember them from episode four of the show. They work together on the Senate Watergate Committee staff. Please welcome Mary DiOrio and Mark Lackritz. Mary and Mark, so I've been referring to you in promotional materials as the first couple of the Senate Watergate committee staff. Is that fair? Well, it's, it's fair because we were open and out about being a couple. Uh, were there others who... Yeah, I'm confident. Well, we, we, were above, we, we were above board about it. Yeah. So as a refresher, the two of you came to Washington, D.C. together uh, to work for the Senate committee staff as investigators. Um, can you just refresh our memories? What were you investigating? I don't mean Watergate, but specific, more specifically, what were you trying to find out? Well, we were trying to find out the facts behind the Watergate break-in, the cover-up, the political dirty tricks, and the campaign finance shenanigans that went on throughout the campaign. But you were focused on one specific part of that, weren't you? Initially, we were focused on political dirty tricks, but we quickly moved toward the Watergate break-in and cover-up because on my very first day uh, on the committee staff, uh, Haldeman and Ehrlichman resigned. Dean was fired. And I think Kleindienst was also resigned. And so that hit the news. And then my boss, Terry Lenzner, said, get in the car. We've got an appointment. And we went out to National Airport and interviewed the bag man, Tony Ulasiewicz, at which point we thought, gee, there's more here than we even thought was possible. Uh, one of my great regrets about the show is we didn't have more Tony Ulasiewicz in it because he... <laughs> great accent. A great accent. He's like a New York City cop, basically. Yes. But just to, just to emphasize, that was Lacris's first day. That was your first day? Prior to that all unfolding, the committee staff had organized around those three issues. And Lindsner had thought before this day that the dirty tricks would be the real story. That that's, so that's what he wanted to get behind. And that's what we thought we were investigating initially. It, it obviously got redirected. Right. So I think one, one thing that really helped me understand like what this thing was that you guys were part of was realizing that there was a minority staff and a majority staff and that uh, you, know, you guys were a, a unit. You guys, had friend, you guys were all friends with each other and you worked through the night. And uh, then there was the minority staff who worked over here and they were maybe friends with each other. How central did it, was it to your sort of personal life and your social life, this group of people that you were surrounded by? I mean, did you guys have outside friends who asked you constantly questions about this thing that was on TV every day and that was every, you know, the obsession of the entire country at that point? Yes. But we, were, <laughs> but we were never home. We were never home. We right. would leave social, the house. Social, yeah. life, Didn't social life was an oxymoron. Yeah. I mean, we, we literally were working 24-7. We were getting in the office at 8 in the morning. We were leaving at 11.30 or midnight every night. Uh, we were working all weekend. And, you know, thank God we were living together because otherwise our relationship, there's no way it could have survived. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's really true. We wouldn't have, I would have been jealous. Of his work. Yeah, I wanted his time, and then I'd want the news. But, 
But to get to your point, yes, we did have social life with our colleagues on the Democratic staff. Yeah. We did not have much social life. I mean, we tolerated the Republicans <laughs> is the best way. And, and we, you played nice, but then you did what you needed to do. And there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of social life with the Republicans. It, w- it was separate. Yeah. But I guess I'm, what, I'm, what I'm curious about is how people on the outside, people who were just watching on their TVs, like how they, how they interacted with you, if not, if, if not during your work, then afterwards. I mean, how is that uh, in the years since, perhaps? How, what have you found in terms of the, the, the memories people have of this thing that you guys worked on? Well, I think Mark had an interesting guest one day. Well, one day I got a call from the front desk. And I'd been friends with Bill Clinton when we were at Oxford together. And the, the uh, front desk was... I got an interview for my next podcast. <laughs> and the, the, uh, the receptionist said, Mark, there's some guy out here who says he knows you. So I went out to the and front. we were important then. He wasn't that and, important. And, and, and Clinton, and Clinton sees me and gives me a big bear hug and says, can I see the office? And I said, sure. And I said, what are you up to? And he said, well, I'm heading out to Arkansas to teach law school. And he looked around and said, oh, this is kind of neat, because Hillary was coming down to work on the impeachment inquiry at the House Judiciary Committee at the same time. So it was, um, it, it was, it was open. The other thing is it was sort of, it was a different era in the sense that we had one Capitol Hill policeman standing outside the auditorium. And this is the auditorium where Bobby Kennedy announced in 1968 that he was reconsidering because going into the presidential campaign. So it had, as a, as a room itself, it had some historical yeah, significance. It had history, right. And but anyway, we were cool then, and our friends did want to be with us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At what point did, did you realize this was, you know, this sort of the obsession of the country? I mean, was it clear to you from the, from the inside of the fishbowl that, that there, everyone's eyes were on these hearings and that people were, you know, starting, I think we have a picture here of the Sam Irvin fan club. Yeah. Like, this was a phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. Well, by the time we were, by the time I was there in May, it was, the hearings were on, people were lining to get into the hearings. Um, there was, there was just a palpable energy. Was, what, what was surprising, I thought, um, Mary and I would take the bus to work from an apartment we were living in and we get off the bus up on Capitol Hill and there would be a line of people coming out of the Russell Senate office building, and it would loop around the block of people waiting to get into the hearings. Mm-hmm. And that's when I think I realized that this was not just another congressional hearing, that this had a lot more weight, momentum, gravitas, whatever you want to call it, plus, plus all the reporters that were there. I mean, that, the networks were there and, the, you know, and all the big feet of the, of the media. And that was, I mean, for a 26-year-old, you're sort of looking, you're sort of overwhelmed, yeah. you know, about all this. And then what was it like when it ended? I mean, the, 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 did your lives suddenly feel very empty? I, what I remember about the end was how poignant it actually was for both of us. Yeah. And I remember waking up on August 9th. We'd seen Nixon's resignation speech the night before. And on August 9th, he was actually going to formally resign. And we slept in late the first time in, you know, two years, basically. And turned on our little black and white TV at the foot of our bed. And we saw him talking to his staff and ranting about his mother and this and that. And he was obviously unhinged. And then he went out to the helicopter and he waved goodbye and helicopter doors and it flew off. And we burst into tears. You know, it was sort of like, oh my God, 
What have we what done? Have, what have we done? <laughs> you know, we thought we were investigating. This guy just be. Yeah. No, we, we didn't yeah. expect it's, this to happen. Yeah, well, yeah. that's not true, but it is true. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's scary, yeah. Did you guys think at that point about how history would remember the work that you did and how it would be described in books and how it would yeah, be understood we, by people who, aren't, who weren't even born yet at the time? We had, exactly. We <laughs> the had, unborn? We had, in the unborn, we had earlier conversations right off the bat because I wasn't quite sure what we were doing, and I was concerned initially. What do you mean? Um, well, initially, we were involved in a big investigation. I, we weren't sure where it was going, and I was concerned because of the McCarthy hearings, and I thought, well, God, you know, Bob, there were a whole bunch of people associated with those hearings who for a moment believed they were doing the right thing, and then, of course, it runs amok. And I thought, well, what if we're doing the same thing? You know, how do we know if this is really... Um, I think eventually we did very much know that we were on the right side. But that was the concern I had initially. And then at the end, when you see that the President of the United States has now resigned, what have you unleashed? And what's going to be next? And, and how do we pull the democracy together? And how do we not so um, discourage people that they don't get involved with politics? I mean, there was a lot of negative stuff, obviously, that falls out to the next generation. And you want to, you want to encourage your leaders. You don't want to scare them to death. Mark? I, I, I would completely subscribe to what Mary said. I mean, I think, I think we were concerned about what this meant longer term. And in, re, in retrospect, a lot of the nastiness that's come to characterize our politics today, you can trace directly back to Watergate and the partisanship that arose in that, despite the bipartisan front. That yeah, I was going to say, people, you know, when they're writing stories today, they mostly reference Watergate as a the last time there was bipartisanship in Washington. Right. And yet, and yet, I know early on in our investigation, one of my colleagues, Scott Armstrong, found Senator Baker's administrative assistant in the office of the White House counsel, which made it very, very awkward for us to share information if it was going to go immediately back to the White House. And so we maintained a... So we didn't share so, yeah, so we didn't share. We didn't share. <laughs> it was, there was no point in sharing. Because you knew it would just go right back to the White House? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to do an investigation if people are going to know what you're going to ask and what you Right. What but, you know. And the, the stuff we wouldn't share is the stuff that was leading up to. But then if we were finally going to interview you, we didn't do it with just the Dems. We would bring the Dems and the Republicans. Now, they may not know why we wanted to talk to you. We knew why we wanted to talk to you. And that's how we were building our end of the hearing. Um, and they, of course, were trying to do the same thing. So what do you, I mean, what, what's your, how does it feel to see Watergate being bandied around as, as the, like, example we should all wish we could follow in 2018? Like, this was, like, the last time that Democrats and Republicans could work together and that Republicans could buck their party loyalty in favor of the truth. Like, how did that, how did that happen? How did that idea um, t- take root? Well, I think, I think it was because we were successful. I mean, I think, what happened is we became the prototype. What I was concerned about is we became sort of the prototype for every scandal later on. And whether it was Korea Gate or File Gate or Burt Lance Gate, whatever the scandal was always had a gate attached to it. And it became sort of almost shorthand for, gee, maybe this will be another Watergate. I remember being a little bit concerned a couple times when 
uh, people on the Hill reached out to Terry and me about coming up to staff something. The one I remember most clearly was Alexander Haig got nominated to be Secretary of State by Ronald Reagan. And the Democrats wanted to do a reprise of Haig's role in Watergate and wanted us to go back and do that again. And I I really didn't want to, you know, it's sort of like it was a one-off. It was a set of circumstances, a unique time in history. A lot of different forces came together because of a lot of different institutions and people, you know, some of whom are going to follow us up here tonight. I mean, Bob is, without his work, none of this could have happened. And um, I think that people now want to fit scandals into some box that makes sense. And so Watergate's a familiar box. But how did the, how did the, I mean, it sounds like you think that the bipartisanship, you know, bipartisanship helped Watergate have a happy ending is a myth, is, what, is how I've gathered, uh, what I've gathered from talking to you about this. No, I, I don't think it's a myth. There, there, was a, there was such a thing in those days as a moderate wing of the Republican Party, or even a liberal wing of the Republican Party. Senator Javits of New York was a leader of it. Uh, there were lots of senators on the Republican side that were pro-civil rights, uh, pro lots of um, anti-war, things like that. And it wasn't until the 80s when all of a sudden they developed these loyalty tests uh, and, you know, purity tests that if you weren't, you know, for tax cuts and increasing defense spending and that and anti-gay rights and anti right. that sort of thing that you really weren't a Republican. So there was, you know, there was an overlap of the parties at the time. Yeah. Mary, we just have a minute left. I meant to find a way to set you up to tell a wonderful story that I want you to tell these people about related to the fact that you were the only woman uh, on the investigative team. Yes. <laughs> Just tell the story. There's no segue. I'm sorry. There's no segue at all. I was often given, the boys were afraid of the girls, the strong women, and Rose, <laughs> they terrified. And Rosemary Woods um, was going to be interviewed. Rosemary Woods was Nixon's personal secretary. And she was responsible, something for, well, for an 18-minute gap in these tapes. In any event, Miss Woods was coming to the committee to be interviewed in an executive session in Senator Irvin's office, but by mistake, she and her counsel came to G308, which was that room we were describing. We get a telephone call. She's out front, and Terry goes, oh, Mary, Mary, you go take her, and you take her over to Irvin's office. Well, I'm a staffer. I've been to Irvin's office once. I mean, it's his secret hideaway office. It's not the regular office. So I dutifully go, and I see Miss Woods, and she is fear. There's been a cartoon that one of the secretaries had put up on the wall showing her stretch for the 18-minute gap. So I don't just get Rosemary. I get a really angry woman. And I said, no problem. So off I go. I have no sense of direction. I'm not confident how to get to this place. And I blow it. I, we go up, I, I take her down the stairs and down the hallway and up the next set of stairs and you look out the window, and there's the Capitol, and we're supposed to be in the Capitol, and I'm, I'm nowhere. So she said to me, I knew it. I knew you didn't know what you were doing. And I said, I most definitely know what I'm doing. I wanted to be sure we weren't being followed. <laughs> so down we go, and we get her there. So you needed a segue. No segue. No segue. <laughs> thank you both so much You guys, for being thank here. you. Let's give a round of applause to Mary Fiorio and Mark Lackett. All right. Our next guest... 
Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. You strike for the Washington Post, still does. Bob Woodward, come on out. I wrote my opening joke, which was going to be to say, what's your connection to all this? <laughs> Thanks for being here, Bob. Thank you. I want to talk to you about what it's like to be responsible for the overwhelmingly dominant version of the Watergate story. Uh, every time I talk to anyone about this podcast, I would say, well, you know, before I started, before it started coming out, I would say, what do you, what do you know about Watergate? And nine times out of 10, people say, well, I pretty much know what's in all the president's men. And I want to know from you what, how that is, how you've experienced that, I guess, in the years since it was published. Uh, you have no idea how many women I've disappointed. <laughs> 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 as a starting point, and, uh, and it's incomplete. We did stories in 1972, and the reality was they were not believed. And it was Senator Irvin who called me up and said, uh, come and visit. Uh, he was thinking of doing this investigation of Watergate for the Senate. He would be the chairman. And he wanted our sources, and I said, we can't tell you our sources. And he said, that's fine. And uh, if you look at the what he did with that committee, it, it's the gold standard of congressional investigations. They got all the witnesses on television, John Mitchell, all uh, Bob Haldeman, Nixon's top aides, and you could see who they were and what they said. And then they discovered the secret taping system. So Watergate went to the Senate Watergate Committee. The special prosecutor was appointed, and then the first one, Archibald Cox, fired. That started the House Judiciary Committee uh, looking at impeachment, and the issue kind of uh, reached a, a climax when the Supreme Court decided that 64 of Nixon's tapes had to be turned over. And it was an extraordinary moment because the impeachment investigation became bipartisan. I, I think the first vote was 27 to 11 or something like that. And when the final tape was released in August, everyone, all the Republicans, joined the Democrats saying Nixon should be impeached. And, of course, uh, when that tape came out, uh, Nixon resigned. 
And so hardly any of that is in all the president's men. Yeah. Right? That's, I mean, it's, and, and, and this is why as uh, we go through the Trump-Russia, et cetera, investigation, people want quick answers and solutions. And uh, Watergate took two years, two months. And these things take a lot of time. There needs to be an accumulation of evidence. There needs to be debate. And um, so I I feel kind of calm about uh, what's going on right now, though I think it's mighty serious and it may reach uh, some ending that uh, ends the Trump presidency or it may not. But that's going to be decided on the evidence like Nixon's case was decided on the tapes. Thousands of hours. I mean, imagine thousands of hours of your private conversations. I'd probably get I'd probably get impeached. Yeah, you would. That they, they, they'd give your show to somebody else. <laughs> um, I mean, that, what you just said, I mean, reminds me of the quite startling fact that I didn't appreciate when I began this process, which is that your your book came out before the story ended, right? Yes. June exactly. June of 74 is when it was published. No, it, well, it was April of 74, April so 74? about four or five months before so Nixon resigned. Yeah. yeah, It's quite amazing that a book that came out before the story even ended ended up being the one everyone knows and the source of everyone's conception of this story. What do you think accounts for that? How, why do you think your take took? <laughs> because it packages it in a way that's understandable. And Watergate was complex, and it had multiple investigations going on. The Senate, the House, ultimately uh, the Supreme Court had to decide. And so I just think the question you were asking, uh, Mark and Mary, is really still pulses throughout any discussion of Watergate, and that is, what was it? And it was not just a burglary. In the end, Watergate was a mindset, Nixon's mind. If you think about it, uh, the day he resigned, he gave this speech in the East Wing of the White House, called his friends, staff there, and it was televised live nationally. And Nixon was sweating. It was kind of a psychiatric hour. He talked about his mother and his father and his brothers, and people in the audience were really worried he was going to have a nervous breakdown on live national television. And then Nixon kind of waved his hand like, this is why I called you here. And he said something very profound and memorable. And that he, he said, always remember, others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them and then you destroy yourself. So here Nixon got it that hate was what his presidency was about. Let's use the power of the presidency to settle scores, use that power as an instrument of revenge. And that's what it is the real sickness and uh, of of Watergate. It's not just it, that it was illegal, but that it was about hate, and that was the piston that drove him in so many of his actions. 
I mean, it, it's interesting because uh, someone pointed out to me that people have written lots of books about Watergate. I know, and, but so, I mean, there's I mean, there's an endless reexamination. Good. Yeah. Part of what I'm curious about, and I just don't have an answer to this, is how do some of them become influential? How do some of them kind of gain traction and 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 become part of sort of this you know era that's between us all, and that we all can kind of assume everybody else is aware of, and others don't. Well, I, I, our book came out uh, you know, at a time when it looked like Nixon was really in serious trouble, and it explained the origins, and uh, people are interested in the origins. It was a story about Carl and I were young. I think we were 11 and 12 years old. <laughs> uh, we were 28 and 29, and... Uh, it was a contest against the White House, which was just denying and lying. And uh, we had editors and a publisher at the Post who, who stuck with us, who said, I remember Catherine Graham inviting me up for lunch once, and we're going through this, and she said, when's all the truth going to come out? And I said, uh, and th this was in January of 73, uh, I, I said, because it, there's a cover-up going on, because the investigation is weak, that when Carl and I in this phase go knock on doors, we get doors slammed in our f faces. And so my answer is, it's never going to come out. And, and never the full story or the truth. And she was, you know, never, don't tell me never. I was jolted and left, this was a lunch, uh, a highly motivated employee after she said that. But what, it wasn't a threat, it was a statement of purpose. And what she said was, and this is critical, said, you know, this is the president. We believe we have good sources, so we have to triple, quadruple our effort and get to the bottom of this. And then she asked why, and I, di I didn't have a real good answer. She had a great answer to her, her question. And she said, why? Because this is the business we're in. This is what we do in the newspaper business. Do you think anything, I mean, is anything, is anything lost in having the, the main story of Watergate be so focused on reporting? Like you, you, you walked through like all these different stages of the of the of the process, right? That required the Senate committee, that required the House Judiciary Committee, it required the Special Prosecutor's Office, and yet when I think most people think of Watergate because of all the president's men, they think it's a story about reporting. You you must have seen the movie of all the president's men at a very young age because it stuck with you, hasn't it? I don't think I'm the yeah. only one, am I? No, no. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but uh, it's not. The whole story, I know, and I, I think, yeah. I, and I think that's, um, I think that's the point. And I think we, the real issue in Watergate is, and it was Senator Irvin in his final report said, asked the question, "What was Watergate?" and says it was an attempt to destroy the electoral system in the United States on the way 
candidates are nominated from both parties and the final election. And you look at all the dirty tricks and illegal operations. I mean, they had 50 people running around conducting all, you know, if I put 50 people on you and you're running for president, I I can pretty much make sure you're not going to win. And it stemmed from this anger that Nixon had about uh, no one really appreciated him. And my God, he made it to the presidency and there was a feeling of entitlement. No one's going to take it away. And when he was running in 72, he was going to make sure that he won and that so it's 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 at root a very ugly story um we just have a few minutes left and i want to talk about trump for a second because i'm curious what you think people in the future will remember about the past couple of years that we've lived through and what you think the sort of the dominant narrative will be i mean i know it's the story's not over but based on what we know so far i'm glad you asked that question because i have the answer written down (laughs) right here I mean, this is part of the problem with journalism in the internet era of impatience and speed. Tell me, not just a soundbite, but tell me what's going to happen. Tell me what the future is. And I think it's a disease in the media, frankly. And I'm sorry, and and you've you've got it. Because what it does is it absorbs lots of repertorial energy and discussion and as you point out, we don't know, and we, we're not going to find out until it happens. But in the course of events, uh, we run by the story. We don't. I, I'm doing a book on Trump now, and I'm able to do six-hour interviews with people. I don't have a deadline. I have that luxury of time, and we run by all kinds of stories because we don't do enough work in the media to really dig out uh, what happened. And it's hard, and it's not as if people in the Trump White House are calling reporters saying, hey, come on over, we want to tell you the whole tale. Uh, They don't. There's lots of resistance. There's lots of negative feelings about the media. So focus back. Try to figure out what really did happen and not so I'm going to deprive you of what I've written out (laughs) in terms of my prediction. (laughs) That's fair enough. Um, All right. Well, that's a good place to stop. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Our next guests are Virginia Heffernan, the host of Trumpcast and legendary journalist Gail Sheehy. Have a seat. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. 
And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. All right. So, Gail, you wrote uh, an amazing piece, two pieces, actually, 1973, um, that I was just delighted by when I read them in New York Magazine. Uh, Amazing piece of research you did. I mean, that was like, what, 45 years ago. It's cited in a bunch of books. <laughs> it lives on. And I, I, wanted, I want you to just briefly tell us what you did for that piece, what the reporting was, and where you went and who you met. It was really fun. <clears throat> okay, so nobody was writing about the real Nixon supporters. And so I, for New York Magazine, went out to the, the most popular bar in Astoria, Queens, to find the bar called Terry's Bar. Irish bar, full of pipe fitters and iron workers and tough Nixon supporters who were all Democrats up until then. But in 1968, you know, the the lid blew off the country and they were hysterical over all these anarchists and, you know, uh, anti-war people and terrorists and communists, you know, bringing down our country. And Terry's Bar was where they gathered. This was basically like Southern, Southern Democrats, but in New York. But in New York, yeah. yeah. So, and then the sign over Terry's Bar told you everything you needed to know. It was, it was a certificate saying, um, the certificate to the nobodies. Yes, And right. all those guys... Nobody of the Year Award. Nobody right? of the yeah, Year that, Award, yeah. that's right. <laughs> and these guys all felt like nobodies until Richard Nixon gave them a voice, where we heard that, you know, rehearsed right. again. Right. They really loved this guy. And I wanted to watch the Watergate hearings with them in that space. So I would sit on the bar. I mean, I had a little different legs in those days. And I would say, hey, guys, you want to watch that Watergate thing? And all of a sudden, <laughs> somebody would say, turn it off! You know, I want to hear it. And somebody else would say, all right, let's hear, we'll throw something at it. And they were just, they thought this was all a big show to bring down their guy, their president. And they, and they never gave that up. You know, the most fascinating thing about that follow-up is... She did, so, so Gail did a follow-up a couple months later after the hearings were pretty much over, where she went back to the same bar right. and talked to the same guys. And they were still there. 
But I'm talking about... <laughs> Same stools. Um, but they were... I'm talking about three months after Nixon resigned, 23% of American voters were still in support of him and thought he had been run out of office. To 23? Yeah. That's not that many. But post-resignation, yeah, I guess it, a that's, way to fall. That's, yeah. a, that's a lot. Um, I want to ask you both a question, which is... so. Okay, Gail's part in the show, I think, was many people's favorite because the quotes that Gail got from these guys at Terry's bar were like, there was no daylight between how they sounded and when mm-hmm. they talked about Nixon and how Trump supporters sound when they talk about right. Trump in what people at Slate call when someone, when someone like goes to Trump country and looks around and interviews people, they call, we call that a Cletus safari. Um, <laughs> And uh, the quotes from your people are identical to the quotes from the folks in those in those modern day Trump pieces, and I don't understand why. Like, what explains the fact that these people were so similar to each other? And I wonder, Virginia, if you have any insight. Well, I want to say a word about the Cletus Safari. Um, we, you know, there's there've been. I think Alexander Petrie did an amazing parody of the. Um, typical New York Times story of, you know, we went back to West Virginia, saw a guy chewing on a rusty nail um, and uh, and um, talking about how he still loved Trump in spite of, you know, getting no cold job back and so forth. You know, the people who mystify me are not those voters as much as the many bankers, lawyers, even professors and, you know, upper middle class professionals who who voted for Trump. And we, we just, we haven't seen a really convincing profile of, you know, the Goldman Sachs crowd or, you know, that were behind him. Where ideology doesn't play into it, even self-interest doesn't play into it. That's, that's what we, you know, you discover at, at say a bar like that, or now in the chewing on a rusty nail stories that, you know, they may be motivated or may have said that they worried they had economic anxiety, which I think we've all had, Economic anxiety to me seems like, do you agree with the statement, I have sometimes worried about money? Um, but in any, in any case, they suffer from some kind of economic anxiety, human condition. But then they, why, that I understand, but why do they latch on to this, to this um, particular personality? And as a remedy, the idea of being part of some imagined clique of aggrieved mostly white men, right? Well, they are. And, and uh, you know, what notable about t- t- Terry's bar was there were never any women there. I mean, they the wives were back home, you know, making yeah. chili. So, um, and the guys, and they, and they would say, you know, we need a strong man on top, you know, a really strong man hmm. on top, and whip everything in shape. This is Terry. And then he'd say to me, you know, that might scare some people. It doesn't scare me. And the other guys said, oh, it doesn't scare us, you know. We know what we need on top. Exactly. Mm. It's right out of Trump's mouth, right? So I, I think that there, but the other thing that I found when I went, and I'll get, tell you later about the bar that I went to last night that's replaced Terry's bar, whole different scene, um, but the same kind of guys, some of them, and what they are really about is the same thing the Goldman Sachs guys are. <clears throat> you know, I kind of, I like seeing my, you know, I like seeing the market go up. I like seeing that I'm working full time now. And, um, when they, and I said, okay, so when were the guys at the current bar quiet about Trump? Well, they zipped their lip when it looked like the market was going down. There was no big mm. rah-rah Trump thing. So it's that same economic anxiety, mm. I think, runs through all class levels. 
It's uh, interesting that, that the that the keeping score happens with the market of all places. I don't think Nixon voters maybe, you know, would consider themselves invested or shareholders. Not then, but I think they do now. They do now. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're gonna close the segment with a quiz. It's gonna be really fun. Uh but first, Gail, I want you to tell us what you did last night. Oh yeah. Oh. Me I had to. I like hearing about this. <laughs> well, I went to the equivalent of Terry's bar of today. In Queens. And I looked it up to see what's the most popular bar in Astoria, Queens. Okay, it's called Veronica's Bar. That's the first thing you have to know. Wait a minute. A woman owns Terry's Bar. She's Irish, but she's not a guy. And her daughter is the favorite bartender. And she's educated. Um, she was a bartender from out of high school for 10 years, made enough money to go to college, political science major, and she comes out, and she's now getting a nursing degree. She's 32 years old, and she's totally anti-Trump. So I go in there, and I'm talking to these guys, and they're, they're like, there's, a, there's actual, you know, disparate people there. There's a Hispanic couple, and there's a woman with her boyfriend. And why she goes there is because of Veronica and her daughter, make it safe for single women or married women to come in there. And later at night, when the old timers get really soused and start groping, she cuts right in and she says, you know, okay, Oscar, you get any closer than that? And I'm going to call her boyfriend. She's got a really big, nasty boyfriend. And it's fake, but it stops the guys. So it's a totally integrated bar. They have women, men. And what they talked about was some of them were, were talked about. I love the guy. I love Trump, you know, Trump, because yeah. I'm working full time now. And then another guy will say to him, oh, my God, come on. I didn't even vote this time. I voted all my life, but I'm not voting this time because I'm so sick of voting for the lesser of the two evils. And then there'll be a, a, a Bangladeshi guy, and he'll say, piece of garbage. <laughs> say, Does, Do you say that out loud when more of the Trump supporters are here? Yeah, I do. So they don't, they never come to blows, but there's a real spread in this bar in, you know, what used to be Archie Bunker country mm-hmm. and now is much, much more polyglot. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope you write it up and I hope you send it to New York, to New York magazine because I think we need an update. Well, I'm going to go back there on a, on a, on a warm night uh-huh. because the, when the doors are open, they make so much noise in there. <laughs> that, that people, you know, come and stand outside to just listen to what's going on inside because it's so <laughs> entertaining. Um, thank you for sharing that. I was so excited when Gail told me that she was going back to t- the equivalent of Terry's Bar the night before our show. So <laughs> I'm glad you actually did. Um, all right. As promised, I have a short quiz. We're going to guess whether the quote I'm about to read is someone talking about Donald Trump or someone talking about Richard Nixon. Excellent. (laughs) Um, I'm not going to direct them to either one of you. You guys can just shout it out. Okay. Okay. It's a whole lot of nothing. It's pathetic. They're sweeping up a whole lot of people who have nothing to do with the president or his campaign. After two years, they have nothing to show. Trump. The giveaway there. You say Trump. Yeah. Oh, I think that's Nixon. It's Trump. Oh. Yeah. It's Trump. Gathering all those people. A whole lot of nothing, and it sounds like the period, and so does the two years. I know, I was trying to kind of talk in an old-timey way a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) But also, two years is wrong. Uh, Yeah, that's true. Um, All right. Out here, you don't hear the bitching about blank that you do back east. It's Congress that's lost its credibility here. 
Nixon. Yeah. I think everything's Nixon. 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 It's Nixon. You guys are right. The only Trumpites I talk to are bots, too, so I don't really understand how they, <laughs> like, how the flesh and blood ones. I should get to a bar and off Twitter. What's wrong? <laughs> Gotta go to the bar. <laughs> All right, a couple more. If there are any tapes, they have to be turned over. You can't be cute about tapes. Well, that's gotta be Nixon. You say Nixon? Um, I'll say Nixon, too. Even though we talk about tapes all the time, the like idea that there's a P-tape, for example. But so, anyway. So, so this was, in fact, a reference, I think, to the tapes that Trump claimed to have of him and Comey talking. Oh. So that's, that was a right. Trump uh-huh. The Lordy, I hope they're tapes, right. tapes. And um, then what, wasn't, weren't the rumors about tapes that uh, Stormy Daniels has some tapes or pictures? There's a lot of tapes. There's yeah. going to be lots of tapes. They, her lawyer put a DVD, I will say. He's getting no MP3s yet, but we have seen a DVD. Really? <laughs> I don't understand. Oh. Tapes must just be yeah. the locution. The locution. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think we had a poll, actually, at the Slate office about who pictures a DVD, who pictures a VHS tape, and who pictures... Like a file when you pick, think about the P tape. Yeah, I don't remember what the. I don't remember what the. What the oh my god, that is the nerdiest was. discussion of the P tape I've ever heard. <laughs> um, all right, a couple more. The president puts his life on the line. Why should he have to pay any taxes? <laughs> oh my god, I can't imagine anybody thinking that Trump has put his life on the line. I mean, he has bone spurs. Come on, poor man. <laughs> I know that's painful. I I think that's Trump because right because it, Nixon wasn't a tax dodger. That's right. Oh, wasn't he? No. Oh, he was. That's about Nixon. Uh, yeah, wow. this is great subplot about right. <laughs> Nixon not paying his taxes. And in fact, this is a lovely factoid. When Nixon said, "I am not a crook." That's what he was talking about. He was defending himself against accusations of tax evasion, not Watergate. Right. Mm. No one was accusing him of actually going into the DNC himself and taking stuff, right? So now it makes more sense, right? <laughs> okay, I got two more. Let it go and move on. The media is the one that's propagating it. They just won't let it die. There are things that are more important right now, and that's over and done with. I'd say uh, Trump. Trump. It's Trump. They would have said the press in those days, I think. <laughs> anyway, propagating isn't a word they use in bars. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one. I've seen some real killers in my line of work, but blank makes them look like babies. This man is a rock, like him or not. And when you think of how far he's come back and the things he's endured, he's even more amazing. Nixon. Nixon. You think it's about Nixon? Yeah. It is about Nixon. But the person <laughs> who said it is Donald Trump. <laughs> oh, that's good. On that happy note, let's have a big round of applause for all of our guests tonight. Thank you so much for being here. This live event was executive produced by Faith Smith, and the version you just heard was produced by Andrew Parsons. Special thanks to Gabriel Roth, editorial director of Slate Plus, Slowburn script editor Josh Levine, Slowburn editorial assistant Madeline Kaplan, and Slate Live intern Lizzie Welch. Thanks also to Jeff Bloomer and Shirley Chan from Slate's video team, as well as Baruch College and the NBC News Archive. When you need meal 
mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. Gay rights, now! Gay rights With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. <laughs> and activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.